Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. My guest on this week's episode of Period Story is Jess Bolton. Jess has an amazing platform called Worried Whip It, where she talks about her dog's anxiety and shares stories that help other people grappling with their own mental health. Jess also talks about ADHD, the experience and symptoms that led to her diagnosis, and how she's been able to use her diagnosis to positively benefit her business and the way she works. She talks about her new book, Word Whip It, Inspiration to be Brave, as well as her podcast, Brave Little Podcast. Hi, Jess. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Um, I'm so interested in the work that you're doing, which we'll get into. But let's start off by telling you telling us the story of your very first period. Well, I was trying to work this out yesterday in preparation for this podcast, but I remember it being on my birthday, which was so exciting. And in my first year of secondary school, and I thought at the time, I think that's probably, I think maybe you're 11 in your second year of secondary school. So it must've been my 12th birthday. And that felt really early. But now I know that probably loads of people had started their period already and we just weren't talking about it. But um, I definitely felt like I had this badge of honor. And so what was the experience like? And did you know, did you know what, what was happening when you got it? No. So I think, well, I think I must've had my period for a couple of days before I realized that that was what it was. I think I was expecting um, like a Halloween costume, blood capsule, <laughs> red liquid um, to come gushing out of me or something. And, you know, what actually happens is very different to that um, and was more like a change in my discharge. Um, so I think it took me a couple of days to cotton on. And then when I did, I was like, whoa, um, yeah, not at all what I was expecting. And did you go and speak to um, a parent or a friend or a sibling about it? I spoke to a friend of mine who'd started her period in the same week. So she was like three days ahead of me, which at the time felt like she had an awful lot more information than me. I'm sure she did. Um, but it was definitely the kind of thing where I talked to my peers first. I never spoke to a teacher or anything. Um, there was sort of, I was in an all girls school. So information flowed freely in the corridors. <laughs> <laughs> um and there was definitely like uh an exchange of period products going on and stuff so I had no trouble finding a pad and sorting myself out um and then the first grown-up I told was my mom when I got home and she was great and when you say she was great did you what was the experience like telling her I think I was nervous but um and I think she was probably a bit like, you know, I think as a parent, you've been waiting for that moment, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> so I got like a little sense of that. And, um, yeah, we chatted through my options in terms of like, uh, period products and we went shopping together and 
kitted me out. And then after your first period, what was your experience of your period like throughout your tweens and then into your teen? Well, it's funny because nowadays I'm somebody who talks quite publicly and openly about these things, but um, I was not at the time. Um, I found it quite embarrassing, I guess. The whole concept of having a period I found quite embarrassing. I found having boobs really embarrassing. Like just, I think having a body, um, I just, I just found a really difficult thing as a teenager. So, um, yeah, my, my sort of overriding memories are like trying to hide it from boys I was dating, like putting tampons and pads up my sleeve to go to the bathroom. Um, what else? Oh, like when you show and you're devastated and like your whole world comes crashing down around your ears and you're like, this is the most humiliating thing ever to happen to me. Um, yeah, those are the kinds of memories that I have of my period as a teenager. Can you say a little bit more about this embarrassment? Because I find, I find it like such an interesting concept because I'm talking a lot about embarrassment with my son at the moment. He's 10 and talking about this idea like embarrassment is like you is when you care about what other people think about you and you care about their opinions and you know and this idea like stop caring so much about what other people think to say a little bit more about like this embarrassment and like what it felt and like why why it affected you in terms of the way that you felt about your body and your period i think I definitely cared very deeply about what other people thought of me. And it was heavily informed by the kinds of media that I was consuming. I think I had this very unrealistic idea of what my body was supposed to look like and what it was supposed to perform. And I was very unforgiving. So um anything that my body did that was outside of that very unrealistic box was uh like a humiliation i think mm. um which is so sad to look back on especially because when i think about it i think i thought like you know i was upset by things like stubble and shaving rash which is like a natural <laughs> the only appropriate response that your body has to shaving like everybody has it but in my head i was the only one and it was mortifying and my body was misbehaving and doing things it shouldn't do. Um, same with things like my curly hair and my ringlets felt really less like taboo. But again, I was like, come on, body, just like conform, behave, <laughs> do the right stuff. And I think um, lots of it was very gendered as well. Like I was very conscious of how it was perceived like by boys. And I felt like I was doing a lot of things for boys. Yeah. Um, and I think your my period just felt like the ultimate uh the ultimate thing that could show me up and embarrass me and make me feel dirty and unworthy. Mm. It's so interesting, you know, kind of as you were talking, I was thinking about how like uh, this is so common, this embarrassment and this, you know, concern about what other people think. And then you, as you get older, you realize actually people are just, they're having the same thought and they're, so worried about themselves that most of the time they not even like thinking about you they're just worried about well, what are what's she thinking about me um 
but it seems to be this a very common experience, this kind of teenage embarrassment, this, you know, coming into your body, things being, feeling really unwieldy. Um, and what about now? What's your experience of your period now? What's your relationship with your period now? So now I have the Marina coil, which has totally changed how my periods manifest. Um, so I've had it for about eight years and I basically almost don't have periods. Like I don't really bleed. Um, so, I mean, I bleed a bit, but I don't use period products. I haven't done in ages. I think I used a tampon for the first time in years the other day. And I was like, this is a strange <laughs> experience. <laughs> um, yeah. So I quite, I, I like that, that side of things. Like it's working quite well for me, my contraception and stuff, which is great because hasn't always been the case and isn't the case for everybody. Um, but I do have, I know that something is up with my periods. Like I have always had painful periods, which I always thought was normal. I'm now learning thanks to people like you, Linise, that, um, it's not and doesn't have to be. Um, and I've definitely had this sense since my early twenties that there's something slightly squiffy maybe with my hormones and stuff. So, um, sometimes I actively engage with that and think about it. Most of the time I just put it out of my head and don't really think about my periods much. Okay. And. Talk a little bit about like, you know, this, this sense about like you, that something's going on and like with the pain, like, what, can you talk about, uh, describe the pain a little bit? So, cause I think this is really interesting for a lot of, will be list, interesting for a lot of listeners. And certainly, I, um, on my TikTok account, one of the number one questions I get is, you know, I, have a really painful period. Is it normal? I throw up from the pain on my period. Is this normal? I can't get out of bed. First two days of my period, I thought this was normal. And I think the more we talk about what pain feels like and we denormalize it, um, the kind of more we'll be able to shift away from like stop uh, away from this idea that period, period pain is just something that we're supposed to experience. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I guess the reason that I didn't think of it as an issue until I was in my twenties is because when I was at school, lots and lots of people had painful periods. I knew one person who'd been diagnosed with PCOS and it was like a major deal. Um, but for the rest of us, we were just having what we assumed were normal periods and some of them were painful. And I knew that, I mean, there was one girl in my class who had such painful periods that she would faint regularly. Uh, would vomit like and that was kind of normal like occasionally she'd go to the sand like the you know doctors on site or whatever but um most of the time we just knew that that was happening and it was something we all put up with and we'd be like oh can we get you a glass of water or anything while she was sort of lying on the floor um but for some reason like culturally that was something that we accepted as normal i think we'd probably been told that it was normal and and so um we internalize that. So my periods having been painful, but much less painful than that, no fainting, no vomiting, um, not even a, like a full day in bed. Um, I thought, well, like, aren't I getting off lightly? Mm. <laughs> At least I'm not, you know, um, literally passed out on the floor. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk, um, about ADHD because this is something you talked a lot about on your Instagram account, you're a human 
Jess Instagram account because Jess is also the name of one of your dogs. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Not um, by design. I feel like I have to point that out. She was adopted. <laughs> um, but it's been really interesting to, to see your journey um, over the last couple of years and see how you've been going on this path where you're discovering of discovery of like what's been what's been going on and how you've the diagnosis and how you've been managing this so can you just say a little bit more about your journey and talk a little bit about the signs and the symptoms that you notice in yourself that prompted you to pursue a diagnosis Mm, uh yeah so when I think about the signs and the symptoms now that I understand what ADHD is and how it manifests and how it manifests in women specifically like I've got almost every symptom <laughs> and uh, it seems obvious and makes a lot of sense, but I didn't recognize it until I got, I was diagnosed a year ago. Um, and the reason I started thinking about it was because I had this pattern at work, which was where I would get a job, start out really well, perform really well, um, enjoy myself. People would like me. It was all going really well. And then sort of Three to six months in, I would start feeling overwhelmed and panicked and like desperate to get out. And I think I felt like things were getting on top of me. I was struggling with other people's systems and it felt very oppressive. And I felt like I just couldn't cope and couldn't perform in those environments. So I would spend (laughs) the next nine months or a year or two years feeling constantly panicked and miserable. And eventually I would leave and get a new job and the cycle would start again. So I was doing that for a decade. And last year I was in a job that was very high pressured where the role had changed a lot and I was really struggling. So I was crying in the mornings before work. I was crying every day on my lunch break. My husband and I would go for a walk with the dogs and I'd cry for an hour. And then I'd cry when I closed my laptop at the end of the day. I was like, this is not normal. So I, I rang my GP and got signed off work because I just, I couldn't cope at all. Um, and while I was signed off, I did some research and I was like, I'm going to have to go back in two weeks time to work and try and perform in this role. Um, and while I was doing this research, I was looking up like, can't hold down a job and all of this stuff. And I started reading about ADHD and it really struck a chord and resonated. And I realized it was manifesting in loads of other areas of my life. Um, and yeah, they were all parts of my life where I just kind of felt like a failure. Like I felt like the kind of person who just I couldn't, I couldn't look after my stuff. I just thought I'm not capable of looking after my stuff. And that's a personality defect that I'll just live with. Or I thought, um, I'm not organized. I never will be. I can't be. And I used to get in a lot of trouble for it at school. And again, like that's just a personality defect of mine. Um, so it was doing terrible things for my self esteem. Um, terrible things for my working life. And yeah, I just hit a kind of rock bottom and, and ended up with a diagnosis of ADHD. And how long did it take you to get formally diagnosed? It was really quick because I did it privately and paid. Um, yeah, because I was in such a difficult spot and it felt so urgent. And I thought if I can have this diagnosis and I can go back to work and I can say, this is what's happening to me, then maybe my situation will change. And what changed after you got your diagnosis? Well, I got bought out of my contract at work. <laughs> so when I went back after my um, time off, they said, this doesn't look like it's working for you. We don't think it's working for us. 
how would you feel about being bought out of my contract? And I'd known for a really long time that I wanted to go freelance. I've got this social media business that I was running like a business. Um, and that had always been my dream and my aspiration. Um, so suddenly I had a little bit of money, like a few months salary and I had this opportunity and I just thought I'm going to grab this with both hands. And I did. And this is the first job I've had <laughs> where I'm a whole year in and it's going better than it was at the beginning. Amazing. Something I remember you posting about, I think this was before you got your formal diagnosis, was spending and attitudes around money and losing money and misplacing and not knowing where you, you know, the, where what you did with things that you bought and having to buy things over again. And I've, that's something that I've seen a lot with, I seem to know a lot of women with ADHD, which is really interesting. Um, and that's something that I, a theme that I've seen quite a lot. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So they call it the ADHD tax and it's a very real thing. And there's a, a charity that's totted up what they think it costs in a year. And it's like hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. Um, so for me, it was things like I lost my passports all the time. At one point, they would only issue me a one year passport because I'd lost so many that they had to put like a control on it. Um, and you know, every time you're paying hundreds of pounds to get an emergency passport thing, cause you obviously don't realize until you need it. And then you're in a rush and you're traveling across the country. That kind of thing would happen to me all the time, but also losing money in your house. I remember one like really formative experience when I was a teenager where I left. 60 pounds in a school locker over the holidays. And it was like a big deal for me because it was all the money I had and for my parents. And I just remember it being this huge thing. And that was quite formative, but that's something that would happen to me all the time. Um, whenever I look at my finances, I'm paying for the same thing three times, the same prescription, subscription, and then stuff that I haven't canceled. Um, yeah. And just the cost of doing so many things last minute in a panic is a big one. And now that you have your diagnosis, what sort of, what has changed for you? Have you gone down a pathway where you, it's this greater awareness that you have? So you're able to manage your behaviors better. Have you had a prescription like and gone like a more medicated route? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I did, I tried medication for a week and decided it wasn't for me, which is actually not long enough to give it at all. But I was in that really difficult point in life. And I was like, it's just, it was the wrong time. So um, I stopped doing that. And then since I've been working for myself, the symptoms that I was so worried about before, some of them are assets now. Some of them I can just like cope with and breathe through and that's okay. I think the biggest thing that's changed for me is that I'm kinder and more compassionate with myself. I understand myself better. And I'm not thinking of myself as like, um, a person who just can't do things, like who just isn't responsible and doesn't care and all of those things. Like I understand now that I'm working <laughs> within a slightly different framework in my brain. Um, and that there's just so much going on up there that sometimes I lose track of things and that's okay. Um, so I feel better able to explain that to people. I feel better able to manage the emotional side of it in myself. But also I did spend some time looking into processes and systems that might help me. Um, and I've actually found those really helpful. Um, 
Um, and it's been a big change. It's things like, um, I set timers on my phone when I've got tasks to do and it puts me under a little bit of pressure and it means that I get things done to completion, which is not something that I've been very good at historically. Um, or I use this thing called the Pomodoro method. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I have, but can you just say a bit, a bit for those who are listening who haven't? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it, you, it's based around timers and timing your task. Um, but the way that it works is that you work in 25 minute sprints, basically, where you focus on one task and one task only, which was completely alien to me at the beginning, but it's a good idea. It works. Um, and then you take a five minute break and then you do it again and then you have a longer break. Um, but it just means that instead of asking your brain to focus indiscriminately for an unknown amount of time, you're saying, I need you to focus on this one task, but only for these 25 minutes and then you get a break. And that's been helpful for you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't use it every day, but on the days where I'm struggling to get a specific task done, then yeah, I find it really helpful. That idea of compassion, self-compassion is really interesting. And what I find really interesting is that once you were, you had the diagnosis, but also that you moved away from a kind of very formal work setting, you, you found a real difference in your attitude towards your work and what you were able, what you actually were able to do. And I do wonder about, you know, the pressures that we put our under ourselves under in formal work environments where, you know, you're working to someone else's schedule and what that does. I mean, that's kind of the way, way of the world. And that's the way that the corporate world is, is set up, unfortunately. But I do think that you know, I know no companies are starting to think more about, you know, people who, you know, think differently and behave differently and how they can structure work differently. But in the, for, in the majority of jobs, it just doesn't feel like you can sometimes feel like a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing, the thing that I'm doing at the moment work wise is very unstructured and chaotic, but it's working, which is that most days I just wake up in the morning and I just lean into the thing that most takes my fancy. And when I'm working on things that I'm interested in and engaged with, I get them done and I get them done well and I get them done quickly. If I'm trying to do things that I just can't get my brain to connect with, then it takes me days, it grinds me down, it affects my self-esteem, um, it slows me down across the board. Um, but I've been able to identify those things and let go of them or outsource them or just get more support with them. And instead, you know, I don't, I don't work to a timetable. I don't say I'm going to do this on Thursday afternoon at three. I just wake up in the morning and I do the thing that is calling me. And somehow it seems to be working. It, that's amazing to be able to readjust, change your life so you can work in that way. I love, I love that. And I love that you've been able to do that. And this kind of leads us on nicely to talk more about the work itself. So it all kicked off with the worried whippet. Uh, is it, was it on TikTok or was it Instagram? It was Instagram and it was in 2020 before the first lockdown. And I'd wanted to make an account for, for her, my dog for ages. Um, but I was really embarrassed about it. I was like, what will people think? Like, it's so lame. Don't do it. Um, but I was loving all these other people's dog accounts. And then I thought, what, 
Like, why are you limiting yourself and putting yourself down? And whose voice is that in your head anyway? So I went for it. And I was posting about Jess, my whippet, who is, we're her third home. She's had a lot of trauma and a difficult past. And um, she's been with us for five years now. And we've spent every one of those five years working through a lot of anxiety with her that she'll carry forever. And that's very relatable <laughs> for me. And uh, it turns out loads of other people. So these posts about my dog became about my dog's anxiety and they started resonating with people. And then we obviously went into this lockdown where everybody was struggling with the same thing she was struggling with, like leaving the house and meeting new people and all of those things. And it just seemed to sort of take off. It's so funny because you, you think, okay, anxiety in humans and depression in humans. But then when you hear about a dog being anxious or a dog being depressed, it's like almost like people make a joke about it, but you know, it's very real. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Like the, how you noticed that your dog was anxious? Um, well, she was sort of, screaming it at us like it was um it's quite a severe or it was it's it's less so now it's better managed but like there have been some quite severe symptoms for her so um and that's actually sometimes the stuff that I don't tend to share the stuff that I do share is she's a bit nervous about leaving the house and stuff in her sort of most fearful moments I'm in the trenches with her mm. <laughs> sort of working for it um but yeah, I think it's those, it's the decision making that resonates with people. Like she tries to push herself to do things that are a bit outside her comfort zone and will she, won't she? And you can see on her face that she's having exactly the same thought process that you would be having. And I think, um, you're right that like people are dismissive of it sometimes. And I totally get that. Um, also I feel like sometimes what it's done in my space, the space that I occupy is, I've noticed that it lowers the barriers for people to having these conversations about themselves and their own mental health. Um, I think sometimes when you look at a dog who's struggling with something that you're struggling with, you look at the dog and you think, oh, and your impulse is to kind of nurture them and <laughs> give them space to feel their feelings. And that's not always the first impulse we have with ourselves. But I think, um, I think somehow it triggers that in people. And I also find that most of my followers are women, but men are overrepresented in my inbox and my direct messages and they share very openly. And I think, again, there's something about the idea that it's a, a dog behind the account, a sweet little dog who's struggling with something similar to you somehow creates the space for people to open up. And that's been quite extraordinary to see. And it really took me by surprise at the beginning. Um, but yeah, somehow that's, that's what she's created. And how, so how do you treat it? How do you, you know, I, I deal with is a wrong way to put it, but how do you manage these situations where people are emailing you or DMing you really personal stories? Like, is it about holding space for them or is it about pointing them to resources? Like, how do you manage it? Um, usually about holding space, but definitely pointing to resources in a few cases where it looks like people are really struggling. Um, and I do have some kind of international, um, sort of resources shared on my phone. Cause the, you know, when everybody's spread out across the world, you can't direct somebody to a crisis line in their hometown or something, you know, it's, it's quite difficult. Um, mm -hmm. but 
yeah, I, I, I've always worked in sort of mental health and sexual health and on social media in my career. So, um, I sort of understood a framework for if somebody's in crisis, this is what you do, which I haven't used very often. Um, but usually it's just people sharing stories about, um, sort of day to day issues in their lives. Um, so we, I do this thing called the worry box, which is where I share a question box to my stories and I say, leave your worries here for the day, like go about your day. We'll look after them and you can come back and pick them up later. And people put extraordinary stuff in those boxes. And most of it is really mundane. The majority is usually about at times like this, where there's a lot going on in the world, like that, that dominate. Yeah. Uh, but usually there's an awful lot about jobs and work. Like people are really struggling in those areas at the moment. Then obviously personal relationships and illnesses and mental health. Um, and it's really interesting to see. Well, it's amazing that people feel able to do that and open up and offload. Um, it's also amazing to see, to get such a, an insight into as a population, what we're struggling with and to see how it changes over time. And, um, yeah. Mm. It is, it is really extraordinary how people are so willing to open up to strangers and. They, I definitely see this in my social media where people will share the most detailed, intimate things with me. And then I say, you know, have you spoken to your partner, your doctor, your parents about this? No, I'm afraid. Um, and sometimes it's just the fact that people don't know you or there's some sort of connection, you know, like maybe it's a parasocial relationship where they'd feel it's actually okay to open up. And I think it's important to have these spaces when there is so much going on in the world and people are struggling and they don't necessarily know where to turn, especially with men, you know, where it they, there's this kind of attitude, certainly in the UK, where, you know, step up a lip and all of that or be man up and that kind of nonsense. And but having spaces where men can say, well, actually, this is how I feel is really important. Yeah, completely. I think the, the way that men engage with the account has been the thing that's taken me most by surprise. And I'm honored to be holding that space for them. Um, but it's such a shame that for lots of them, it's the first time they've talked about something. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the last. Um, it's such a shame that there aren't other avenues that feel open to them mm. and so this year this september this past september you released your first book worried whip it inspiration to be brave um can you talk about why you focused on bravery yeah i think uh it's something that i actively and consciously employ <laughs> in my life every day as um an anxious person um and it was the thing that I was seeing in Jess that resonated the most with me. Um, these dogs are so brave. Like they see something they want to do and they try it again and again and again until they can do it. And they self-regulate like we, that's not an impulse that we have. Um, or if it is like it's been overridden by like societal things, but they will try something, get overwhelmed, go away and then come back later on their own time and try it again. So I was watching all of these really admirable qualities in them and they just really spoke to me 
Um, so writing the book was amazing. Got to work with this extraordinary illustrator called Anna Paroli, who, um, over the course of sort of nine months brought Jess, my dog to life in the most beautiful way. Um, totally outstripped my expectations and they're just lovely drawings that I will treasure for the rest of my life. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was a joy to write. It kind of wrote itself. Um, it's based on, uh, true stories and incidents, uh, in just the dog's life, but it's about friendship and it's about, um, getting out of bed in the morning on a day where you don't want to and stepping out into the world with courage. Amazing. And where, where can people purchase the book? On Amazon in Waterstones, uh, Blackwells and my favorite, your local independent bookshop. Fantastic. Now you also have a podcast. It's called Brave Little Podcast, which is about stepping out into the world with courage. Can you say more about why you wanted to start this podcast? Um, well, in true ADHD fashion, I just woke up one morning this summer and thought I'm going to make a podcast and I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a series where I sit down with people who, um, you probably already know, love and admire. And I talk to them about the everyday situations that require courage of us. Things like making friends as an adult, which, um, is inexplicably really hard <laughs> and everybody seems to struggle with. Um, so I talked to the incredible Sophie Butler about why that's so difficult and, and how we can get around it. Um, we also talk about things like letting go of other people's opinions of you, um, which was a big one for me. Um, yeah. And sort of, sort of the day to day things that most of us struggle with that we might not necessarily want to talk about. We're just opening up those conversations in a really frank and honest way. And when is it out now or when will it be out? It's out now. So um, every Thursday until the end of the year, there's an episode. Fantastic. And lastly, I have also been following along on your running journey, um, watching you go from kind of, you know, taking your first runs and being nervous about it. And now you're running, doing a big run for charity. Can you talk about it and talk about your motivation to start to start running? Yeah, absolutely. I started running in 2020 in lockdown um, out of an urgent necessity to get outside and cover some ground. And um, my uncle died at the beginning of the first lockdown and my mum and I would go for these runs together where we would be out in the middle of nowhere and we would scream and we would cry and we would wave our arms around and cackle with laughter and just let out <laughs> whatever was sitting on our chest that morning. And it was so fun and so liberating. And I, I completely fell in love with running. Um, and then this past, um, October, my uncle died of pancreatic cancer, um, which has been a devastating thing to watch happen to my family. And this month, November, is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. So I'm running 40 miles to raise money and awareness about pancreatic cancer. Um, currently, 50% of people who are diagnosed die within 12 weeks. Most people don't get any treatment and only 7% of people survive pancreatic cancer. Um, so I'd never heard of it until my uncle was diagnosed a couple of months ago. Um, but it's made me think, okay, I'm going to put this purple pancreatic cancer UK t-shirt on and I'm going to get out there on the street 
and I'm going to run because I know that running will help me with my grief and, um, it has being out in the fresh air and moving your body. You know, it just felt like the right thing to do. And I've been able to raise some money, which is fantastic. And has it hasn't had an impact on your mental health? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I knew it would. It's one of those things you always know. <laughs> um, but just being out in the mornings and watching the seasons change. And when you're going through grief, I think nature has a lot to offer in terms of comfort and reassurance. So there's that, but there's also, you know, the endorphins. It's helping adjust my brain chemistry up a notch so that I'm not wallowing <laughs> in these feelings. <laughs> and it's given me a sense of purpose and drive at a time I, when I could just be on the sofa watching Gilmore Girls. It's very tempting. <laughs> I love that. Um, uh, what do you have coming up next? Um, well, the big thing at the moment is the podcast. So we've released two episodes and there are five more to go. I think that might be terrible maths on my part. Um, but I'm hoping we might be able to continue that in the new year. Um, depending on how it goes. Amazing. What thought do you want to leave listeners with today? I think the thing that's with me at the moment is, um, whatever's weighing on you, whatever feelings you're contending with, they're probably a completely appropriate response to whatever's happening around you. And the best thing you can do is find somebody you trust or somebody with authority and talk to them about it. Hmm. Thank you so much, Jess. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And all of the links to your podcast, your book will be in the show note for our listeners to check out. That's fantastic. Thank you, Lenise. It's been lovely to chat to you. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.